Hello, friends. This is Darren Hayes of PigSceneDispatch.com. Before we take you to your favorite Sports History Network show, just want to tell you a little bit about some merch that you can pick up that represents your favorite SHN podcast. So far, there's t-shirts, coffee mugs, and even books from some of the authors that do podcasts right here on SHN. Who could buy something better than that than have the history right from the, the gentleman that you hear talking about it? But we also are adding things each and every day. And where's that store, may you ask? Well, it's at SportsHistoryNetwork.com. Up at the top, there is the SHN. HN merch button. Click on that. It'll take you right to the store and you can be representing your favorite podcast and show the world that, hey, on the swag that I'm using, it's the headquarters of sports yesteryear, Sports History Network, and my favorite podcaster, the Sports History Network store. Shop there today. George Hallis put 63 of his 88 years into the game of football. He quite possibly contributed more to the NFL than any other person to date. In this episode, I'm going to tell you about the incredible impact that Papa Bear had on the NFL. Welcome to the Football History Dude Podcast, where each episode is a journey back in time to learn about the rich history of the NFL. Your host is Arnie Chapman. Football is his passion, and he wants you to come along with him to explore the yesteryear of the gridiron. So hop on board his DeLorean, and let's get this baby up to 88 miles per hour. This time as we step off our DeLorean, the date is February 2nd, 1895, and we are in Chicago, Illinois. You see, this is the day that our hero was born, and this time our hero is none other than Mr. George Stanley Hallis. You see, they called him Mr. Everything for football because he was a player, a coach, an administrator, an owner, a founder, probably painted the lines in the field, everything. I mean, he did all of it. So basically what I want to say is, before I go any further, there is a disclaimer I am going to issue onto you. There is no way that this episode or even multiple episodes could cover everything that George Hallis did for the game of football and the NFL. Basically, I could say I could create an entire podcast revolving around the life and career of George Hallis, also known as Papa Bear. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to just kind of hint and I'm going to touch on some of the highlights and then I'm going to continue to bring him up throughout the rest of the football history dude. But before I get into his career, we're going to take it back a little bit. You see, his parents were immigrants from Pilsen, Bohemia, back in the 1880s. His father was Frank Sr., and he was a tailor. And then there was his mother, who was Barbara, a grocer. His father would end up passing away in 1910. So George and his four siblings would end up helping their mother, Barbara, at the grocery store and then also at the apartment building the family owned. So George had to kind of like, I guess you say, grow up quick, get tough, son. You know, the tough kind of love, whatever. I would say that this unfortunate event, even though, you know, kind of sucked that he had to have his father pass away when he was 15, probably helped him throughout his life become a leader and a take charge type person. Because, like I said, you know, they had to help at the grocery store at the age of 15 in the apartment building. So I'm thinking that he probably naturally just became a leader and said, let's go ahead, help our mom out, and let's get this thing done. But during that time, he uh, went to Chicago's Crane Technical High School, where he would play baseball, basketball, and football. And to kind of sum up the viewpoint that George had on his uh, love for sports, there was a quote on the Pro Football Hall of Fame's website that he said this, I've loved sports since I was old enough to cross the Chicago street by myself. I'm happy that I made pro football a career. It had been good to me in the material sense. But more important is that I have been associated with youth in all my years as a pro football coach and owner. And throughout this episode, we're going to find out that, you know, a lot of people thought of him as kind of a crusty old dude on the outside. But 
they also definitely kept saying that he was just a teddy bear on the inside and um, known to help many youth in the area and he would end up paying for kids to go to school and all sorts of different things. But like I said, he was a kid himself and then he graduated from the Chicago Cranes Technical High School back in 1913. Then he would proceed to enter the University of Illinois and his best sport, even though he would end up becoming known for football, was baseball. He would play mostly in the outfield and he would have a batting average of 350, which if you know baseball at all, that's a pretty good average. And then in basketball, he would end up becoming the captain of the varsity team as a senior. But they said he was only okay at football because he was kind of like this little dude. I mean, he was taller, six foot. They said he was 170 pounds. So, you know, he'd get pushed around a lot. And there were two different injuries that were pointed out. His sophomore year, he had a broken jaw. And then in his junior year, he had a broken leg. I mean, it's like, keep quit breaking stuff. But this is where the cool part comes in. He's like, I'm coming back for more. I am a tough, gritty son of a bugger. He played for the legendary coach Bob Zupke. And I guess the coach liked to spunk. Even though he liked to spunk, he had to kind of keep him a little bit away from the chaos so he would play him at the end. In the summer when he was at college, he would work for the Western Electric Company, which was a pretty big company there at the time. They were big enough to have these company picnics that were like events, extravaganzas. And one that would be recalled is they would take these, uh, like kind of like boats, I guess you'd call them almost like cruise ships, and they would go from Chicago over to Michigan City, and they'd have this huge company picnic, and they would end up having like all these baseball games and football games and all sorts of stuff for the families and such, and and George was supposed to be on the first of two boats to head over there to Michigan City. But he was a little bit late, so he figured, well, I'll just make the second boat. No big deal, right? It might not have seemed like a big deal at the time, but basically this decision to just wait for the second boat could have led to the NFL, which we're going to go ahead and talk about a little bit later in the episode. You're like, what? How can <laughs> missing a boat and being on the second one lead to the NFL? I'm like, just just hold your horses, bro. We're going to get to that at the end of the show. Just, 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 just settle. Just simmer down a little bit. We're going to to figure it out. Let's talk about the rest of his career. You know, we just barely got into his college career. Like I said, he gave 63 of his 88 years to the NFL. But before his last semester in college, the U.S. entered the Great War. So he enlisted in the U.S. Navy. And while he was in the Navy, he ended up getting awarded his college diploma, even though he missed that last semester. The diploma would be in civil engineering. Now, when he was in the U.S. Navy for the time period of the First War, he was assigned to the Great Lakes Naval Base. And he, at the time, was ordered to organize the great U.S. service teams in football and basketball. I mean, from the beginning, it's like, uh, thank you, Navy. Navy for uh, setting Mr. George Hallis on the right path to being an administrator, owner, whatever you want to call it, of setting up teams because look what happened. We've got the NFL. And during this time frame, when he was playing football there at the Great Lakes Naval Base, there was a game in 1919 on New Year's Day, which was the Rose Bowl. And he would end up becoming, as a player, kind of like your 10 minutes of fame. You know, we've got this amazing game that you had and kind of came out of nowhere. And in this game, the Great Lakes defeated the Mare Island Marines, 17-9. But at the time, the football was uh, a little bit larger. We've discussed in the past, passing wasn't, you know, really the thing to do. But he still caught two touchdown passes and returned an interview interception for 75 yards. So he would be the MVP of the Rose Bowl back in 1919. Now, I don't know if he was actually given that title MVP, but pretty much he'd have the accolades as far as being recognized as the top dog in that game. George would end up being discharged from the Navy soon after that Rose Bowl game. So he decided, I'm going to get back into the sports thing. He went back to baseball. He signed with the New York Yankees in March of 1919, but he would only end up playing 11 games. Something that he said in one of the videos I saw was, I could never end up hitting that curveball. 
and he ended up with a batting average of .091. Uh, yeah, that's that's not so good. That's uh, something that he had to kind of deal with. And he ended up going to a, the St. Paul minor league team and he would end up getting coached and he'd end up having a great coach there that would help him through some of the fundamentals. Iron Man McGinney. He, he just, let's just say baseball wasn't his thing. Um, one thing that happened, they said, was he had a uh, permanent reminder from his baseball career. He uh, suffered a hip injury at training camp there in Jacksonville, Florida. They ended up finding it was like a pinched nerve and doctor would end up working it out. But it really kind of hindered his chance of getting this uh, baseball career off. But still, even though it was a short-lived baseball career, there was a moment that George Hallis remembered from playing with the Yankees where it kind of gave him a fresh perspective and kind of the motivation to keep going. There was an account that he had with Mr. Ty Cobb, yes, the legendary Tigers baseball player, where at a game, he kept, uh, let's just saying, probably using some choice words with some enthusiasm towards Ty Cobb, calling him a dirty scoundrel and probably something else. And then uh, during it, Ty Cobb said, hey, meet me outside in the parking lot, son. So he recalled as he was coming out of the locker room that day, he was kind of looking over his shoulder like, is there someone around the corner here? And then he says he saw Ty Cobb. He said, I was cocked back. I was kind of tight. I'm like, let's do this. If I have to, you're going down. But then he said Ty Cobb did not want to start a fight. He just wanted to tell him, you know, you need to keep that enthusiasm. I really like it. But at the same time, you kind of kind of use it in a positive light because you can do a lot of good things with it. And good things he did, as we're soon to find out. Like I said, he had a short-lived baseball career. So he ended up going back to Chicago, where he would finally use his civil engineer degree, working for a railroad designing some bridges. But that didn't really last too long, even though he promised his mom that he was done with sports. He kept sneaking away to play football on the weekends. And we're going to get into the saga that was the NFL career of George Hallis. But first, I wanted to remind you to head to thefootballhistorydude.com slash episode 9 for more information and links from this episode. Also, if you would like to share your personal favorite football story, please go to myfootballmoment.com for details how to do so. And we're back. This is early 1920 now. While he was working at that railroad, he would end up receiving a call from the Staley Starch Works to relocate and work for that company because he had a reputation for organizing the military sports teams. And this would help start sending him on the trajectory to be able to get into the NFL. You see, he would end up organizing, playing, and coaching for the company's football and baseball teams. And during this time frame, George Hallis would end up founding the Decatur Staley's, which would turn into the Chicago Bears down the road. And during this time frame, Hallis and his partner, Dutch Sturneman, thought that it was a good idea to join some ragtag dudes over there in some auto showroom, you know, in September of 1920. Which, of course, as we found out in a previous episode, this led to what you and I now know as the NFL. So yes, George Hallis was a founding father of the National Football League. But there was a recession going on, and Mr. A.E. Staley told George Hallis, he's like, dude, I can't keep this football team around any longer. I, I just can't afford it. I'm sorry. I mean, we're down to one carload of corn. I'll tell you what. I'll give you $5,000 seed money. You take the team over to Chicago, and like we discussed in a previous episode, he asked that they would keep the name Chicago Staley's for one year, and then George Hallis would end up, because they're playing at Wrigley Field for forever, he would honor the Chicago Cubs that played at Wrigley Field by changing the team name over to the Chicago Bears. So now we have it. We have officially started the long, tenured, and storied history of George Hallis as the player, coach, owner, founder, everything that there is, Mr. Everything Football of the Chicago Bears. So now we're going to get kind of into the professional career of George Hallis. Like I said, I'm just going to remind you, we're just going to touch on a few of the highlights from his career because there's way too many to go over in this episode. Uh, one of the first ones that always gets brought to the forefront was the signing of Red Grange. And George Hallis was, if not all, partly responsible for signing Red Grange and deciding to go on a 
barnstorming tour across the nation that would end up putting the NFL on the map by selling out stadiums and giving legitimacy to the National Football League. In the middle of this tour, they even went to Washington, D.C., and they were introduced to the president as Red Grange and the Chicago Bears. And this is one of the owners, George Hallis. And the president goes, well, that's great. You know, I've always liked Animal Acts. I mean, at the time, it's like, that's kind of what the people thought of the National Football League, as in professional football. It's just an animal act. It's just going to kind of come and go like the carnival or the circus or something that's, hey, thumbs up, bro. And when you leave, it's like, well... That was fun. Let's go do something for real this time. But George Hallis had the forethought and vision to be able to see into the future. Maybe he hopped on my DeLorean. I don't know. Maybe I should go ahead and uh, rewind the tape and see if uh, he was there or something. I'm cool if he did. Because his vision and his forethought with Red Grange and going on this barnstorming tour, like I said, definitely put the NFL on the map. And then he would end up having another game that he called the biggest disappointment of his career. We already talked about this game last episode. It was the sneaker game. Like we said, the Bears, 13-0 against the Giants in the Polo Grounds, Icy Field. They still should have just stopped all over the New York Giants. But the coach of the Giants kind of outwitted Mr. Hallis himself. When he saw those sneakers on the field, they said, what are we going to do, George? And the quote goes as such. He said, well, step on their toes then. And then in that video that I'm going to go ahead and provide some links over to you at the show notes, he's like, well, we, I told them to step on their toes, but uh, I guess it didn't work. But in 1932, he assumed the chairman of League Rules Committee and was responsible for many policy changes to make the game more exciting. He revolutionized the game when reviving the team motion. But how he did this was he ended up putting a man in motion before the snap, which at the time was like, I'm doing this little thing where you put your hands up to your head and you go, mind blown. Like, nobody was like, I don't know what to do here. I don't get it. This would end up leading to the most lopsided NFL game in history, where they beat the Washington Redskins 73-0 in the 1940 championship game. And the crazy thing was, three weeks before that, Washington beat them 7-3. But the T-Motion helped. George Hallis was known for being a uh, person that would scout the other team and pay attention to what they're doing. And he realized that they were playing the same defense as they did that last game, and he had this play that was called the team motion and he's like you know what i see what they're doing and i have the answer and answer it they did like i said they beat them 73 to nothing in a championship game which is still the most lopsided nfl game in history and all these other teams pros college high school of course you know they see this 73 to nothing score so like we gotta do that it's a copy league now and it was a copy league back in the day but mr george hallis was one of the guys that's like always a few steps ahead of you. And I'm, I'm glad he was because if he wasn't, we probably wouldn't have the NFL today. But kind of going back, you know, there was many recollections that all sorts of different individuals had of George Hallis. Like I said, I mean, if you're going to have that long of a career, a lot of people are going to think about you. Most thought of George Hallis is just this tough, like it's a gritty kind of guy. And he's like, uh, there was this video, he you know, kind of put his little eye up in his mouth and he, I don't want to mess with that guy. Looks like he uh, just took a whiff of something. But he had this toughness to him. They said that no team in the NFL resembled the persona of their coach more than the Bears. There was a quote from another guy that said, Win or lose, you're going to hurt after the game. I mean, there were some videos. Like, I saw this one dude where he was running down the field, 
And he just like kind of like did like a jump kick and just like put his foot into this other guy's chest. And then there was another play where there was a guy running. Before he even got touched, he was already out of bounds. And this guy from the Bears came over and tried to do like this like clothesline. I don't know what it was. He tried taking his head off and he just, it was, it had to have been at least 10 yards outside of the bounds because he was like way out there. And it looked like the guy had tried to turn around. I think he was going to try to throw the football back at him. Then he slipped. But it was like, man, the Bears, the monsters of the midway. And it was because of George Hallis. He got this tough. I don't care what happens. We are just going to go after them. We are going to make them hurt. Even if we lose, we're going to make them hurt. Like I said, they actually, a lot of people, you know, he was a softie on the inside, but he had this just toughness to him. And he even did things like psychological warfare. There's a couple different accounts. For instance, he, uh, at halftime, he would have the band go on the field and he would just try to distract the people. He would use a dog on the sideline. So like, oh, kind of need this time out. Hey, yo, Fido, head out on that field. And of course, you know, the dog would go out on the field and can't really play the games. He had to stop the game. And just to kind of like solidify his toughness, and if you had a problem with him, there was a quote from Bill Wade who recalled, if they lost a game, they would play on this field, and the field always had horse manure. He told them, if you guys play like this stuff, you might as well practice in it. You know, with his all probably snarled up kind of mouth and such, and his nose. Like I said, just a tough dude. And he was not one to tolerate disobedience or insubordination. When you watch the different videos and games, you see George Hallison. They said that the refs were scared of him, the players were scared of him, the coaches were scared of him. You see this guy, even when he was an old dude, running out on the field and he would just, just grip into the refs. And a lot of times they said, you know, because he was actually responsible for hiring the refs too, because he was like the owners and he was the administrator, the founder and things like that. So they were scared of him for that regard. And then they got this guy yelling at him. And one dude talked about a play where George didn't like what happened. He ran out on the field and just kicked that dude right square in the butt. He's all like... The kid was funny because the guy's laughing. Like, yeah, he, he ran out there and he kicked him in the butt. He's <laughs> like, George didn't care what happened, you know. George is all like, you know what? If you don't like it, you can get out of here. But he was an innovator in coaching and administrations. There was many firsts that came because of this guy. You know, he was the first, they said, to hold daily practice sessions. One of the first, if not the first, to film the opponent's games for study. And then he had his teams, for the first time ever, broadcast on the radio. He even wrote his own press releases where he would, what they said, go up to the newspapers and he would bring this press release and he would beg for them to put it in the newspaper. And he'd kind of like, look around, I'm sneak you some tickets too if you go ahead and put that in there, boss. But going back to that, you know, scouting, and utilizing film of opponents' games and stuff like that. There was a guy there on YouTube also where he's like, you know, we'd be at practice and we look up and we see that plane flying over and he's like, huh, that's probably George up there looking down at us trying to steal our plays. And all of this is just some of the things that, you know, the different kind of coaches and players kind of recalled about George Hallis, and this was after his career. I mean, even Gail Sayers, they had kind of like a documentary where Gail Sayers was recalling his coach, and he said that that guy would give me anything. You know, he was a tough son of a gun, but I don't even care what anybody says. You know, I love that man. You know, I would do anything for him because he did anything for you, and he did everything for the players. There's an interview with Dick Buckus where he said that uh, George Hallis would drive a hard bargain as far as contracts, and he'd go to me and he says, you know, Dick, nobody comes to see you. They only come to see Gail. And then he said that Gail Sayers would also have the same kind of conversation with uh, George Hallis and Gail would be like, you know, he told me, you know, nobody comes to see you, Gail. Everyone comes to see Dick. So he's like, you know, guess that just goes to show, you know, he had to drive that hard bargain, try to keep that contract price down. But even though he was frugal as far as his contract goes and things like that, he really did care about the team. And like I said, he was the founder, the coach, the administrator and everything. 
And he would take care of his players no matter what. Even if they lost, they said that he would be the first guy to come and say, you know, buck up, man. We got this next one. We're going to go and take it to him. He would even take time out during his extremely busy lifestyle and dedication to the team to reach out to members of the community. There was an instance where he wrote a letter on September 28th, 1978 to the high school team after they had this kind of like huge victory against a rival that they should not have beaten. And George said he saw it in the newspaper and they just had to send it to him because it was like this handwritten document. Well, of course, handwritten document. They didn't have computers back then. But he had this handwritten document that he sent to these guys. And he said, you know, I just want to tell you, keep going. I really appreciate what you guys do. And it was like the middle of his own football season. But he still took the time out because he wanted to go ahead and tell these young men, good job, keep doing what you're doing. That's just the kind of individual he was. Like I said, he gave everything he had for the NFL, so you and I can watch the game. And that's one of the reasons why he was a charter member of the Pro Football Hall of Fame back in 1963, because he possibly gave more to football than any other person in the history of the game. Over the long career of his coaching, he ended up having 324 career wins and six championship titles. But like I said, that doesn't even come close to everything he did. I mean, he's just Mr. Football, Mr. Everything. And we're going to end up having to definitely put some more dedicated episodes or part of episodes to the career that this guy had. So kind of tie this in as far as him giving everything to football and a lot of people wanted to give him back the credit. Kind of reminds me of this movie about George Gibb. And uh, Ronald Reagan would be the star in this movie. And there'd be a line that comes out of this. And it's uh, very popular nowadays. I did not know where this line came from. I had to go to the Google machine to figure it out. Ronald Reagan starred a movie portraying this George Gibb character, who was a former Notre Dame player. And this famous line comes when George Gibb was on his deathbed. He told his coach, Newt Rockney this. Rock. Someday when things looking real tough for Notre Dame, ask the boys to go out there and win for me. So this leads me to figure out where the term comes from. Rockney would end up using these uh, words of wisdom during a halftime pep talk in a 1928 game between Army and Notre Dame. And in this pep talk, he would end up saying, let's win this one for the gibber. And Ronald Reagan would end up forever being tied to this whole win one for the Gipper thing. And I've heard of win one for the Gipper, which is always like, you know, win one for the, the leader, the, the big guy, you know, the one that always takes care of us and never knew where it came from. But it gets me thinking, I'm not a Bears fan, but the 1985 Bears won the Super Bowl. And I'm pretty sure that they were all like, let's win this one for the Gipper. The Bears organization would end up continuing to honor George Hallis to this day, that is, where they put the letters GSH on their sleeve to honor George Stanley Hallis and everything that he gave to the NFL and most notably the Chicago Bears. You see, when he died at the age of 88, he was the last remaining founder of the NFL. But this whole story almost didn't happen. You see, George Hallis was scheduled to ride the SS Eastland ship, also known as the Speedy Queen of the Great Lakes, on the morning of July 24th, 1915. This is that trip that I talked about, Western Electric, where they would head over to Michigan City. But when he was scheduled to be there for the first ship, he would end up being late, so he planned on taking the second one. But when he arrived, he saw the ship capsized on its side in the Chicago River. And this was a tragic moment where 844 people lost their lives that morning. And one of them easily could have been George Hallis. If this would have happened, it's very possible we may not have the NFL.
I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Football History Dude and were able to gain some knowledge nuggets about one of the most influential people in the history of the NFL. If you want to connect with the show and leave your comments about this episode, head to thefootballhistorydude.com contact or hit me up on Twitter. My handle is at FHDude. In the next episode, we're going to discuss the life and career of the man that helped start the transformation of the NFL into a passing league, Don Hudson. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Football History Dude. To make sure you're the first to get the next episode, please subscribe on your podcast player of choice and head on over to thefootballhistorydude.com for the show notes and more information on the history of the NFL. And remember, dudes, where we're going, we don't need roads. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. This is Mark Mortier, and if you're a sports history fan like me, tune in and hear me talk about some great sports moments of the past. Growing up during the 1970s, I got to watch some of the most iconic moments in sports history. Hank Aaron breaking Babe Ruth's home run record. Willis Reed limping out of the locker room in Game 7 of the NBA Finals at Madison Square Garden as the fans erupted with a thunderous ovation. The 1980 Miracle on Ice as Team USA defeated the powerful Soviet Union in the Olympics. Listen every Tuesday on Yesterday's Sports. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.